The reading of God's Word this morning will be taken from James 1, 5 through 8. I'll give you just a few minutes to find that. I would give you the um, Bible page number, but I forgot to look, so (laughs) you're on your own. Listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Thank you that we have opportunities such as these to be reminded of your work amongst us, to be reminded of your work of grace that is continually calling us back to you, to come to you, to come to you in faith and repentance and to know that Jesus is enough for us. Father, more than simply giving us Jesus, you have also provided for all of our temporal needs in this life. And so now at this time, we simply return to you what has come to us from your hand, these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings. And Father, we pray and plead with you that you would use these that you would use these in order that the good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations, that you would use these gifts in order that your kingdom would continue to be revealed here and throughout the world. And Father, as we ourselves prepare now to sit beneath your word, even as we long for the good news of the gospel to go out into all the nations, we long for it to be proclaimed to our ears and to our hearts this morning. Help us to see this morning that we are far more broken than we could ever imagine, but we are also far more loved, secure, and accepted than we could have ever dreamed possible because of what Jesus has done for us. So please lift our eyes to see Jesus, for it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, The children ages three to first grade, you're dismissed to children's church at this time, so If you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your class. For the rest of us, um, last week we started our series for the fall on the book of James, and we jumped right into the deep end of the pool with James because immediately in chapter 1 of James, James starts confronting us with the hardness of life in verse 2 when he talks to us about trials of various kinds that inevitably come into all our lives. Uh, He doesn't say, count it all joy if you meet trials, but when you meet them. Uh, We are assured that they are to come. And we're we're to count them joy, James wrote in verses 3 to 4, because James is telling us in those opening verses that God can use those trials, He can use the hardness of life even, to make us more mature, to complete us, and to make us whole. But when you get to verses 5 through 8, those verses that we read this morning, at first, if you read them out of context, it, it really, it looks like James has jumped subjects, and now he wants to talk about something else, wisdom. 
But he's actually still on the subject of trials and the hardness of life. And what he's saying here is this. He's saying what you really need when the hardness of life crashes into you is wisdom. You know, the author C.S. Lewis, um, he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. Um, and it's a great little book, um, a lot of philosophizing and theologizing about the problem of pain and suffering and trial in life. But later, after he wrote that book, later in life, Lewis met a woman named Joy Davidman, and they fell in love. And even though she had cancer and was most likely not going to live much longer, they decided to get married. And the cancer itself, it went into remission for a few years, and they enjoyed some great years together. But the cancer ended up coming back, and it came back with a vengeance, um, and it ended up taking her life. Um, And in that real-life trial uh, that Lewis went through, none of the abstract philosophizing and theologizing about the problem of pain um, helped him. I mean, that trial, it broke him. It leveled him. It hurt him immensely, right? You know, actually experiencing the hardness of life is very different than writing about it from a safe distance. Um, And so, in going through this trial of his, Lewis wrote another book called A Grief Observed, um, which is basically a journal of his experience with the hardness of life. And let me read you a quote from that very different book that he wrote. He wrote, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing Him, so happy that you are tempted to feel His claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to Him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to Him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? What can this mean? Why is He so present a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent to help in our time of trouble. C.S. Lewis, the great thinker, apologist, theologian, philosopher, but his experience in trial was just like yours. I, I mean, really. When life is falling apart and when in your life bad is very rapidly becoming worse, When we're left in the emphatic silence, we're all asking and even shouting sometimes, where is God now? Right? Why in the midst of the hardness of life does He seem to be so absent from us? Um, My wife doesn't really appreciate my appreciation of Jimmy Buffett, um, but 
he has this great line to switch gears slightly. Um, he has this great line in this one song he wrote about an ended relationship, and this is the line uh, as part of the chorus. He sings, "If the phone doesn't ring, you'll know it's me." Um, and he's singing about the message that gets communicated in the deafening and emphatic silence, right? In the silence, we're desperately trying to connect the dots. You know, what can this mean? You know, we feel forgotten, we feel abandoned, we feel cut off, we feel all alone, and it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel in the hardness of life when it has crashed into you. It doesn't feel like it's making you whole. It feels like it's ripping you apart, doesn't it? And what do we do with that? Um, Because that is the real-life experience. And James says to us in this passage, he says, to deal with the hardness of life, what you desperately need is wisdom. Okay, so I want us to talk through this in three points, uh, this passage. I want us to talk about why we need wisdom I want us to talk about how we can get wisdom. And then third, I want us to talk about where wisdom comes from. So why we need wisdom, how to get it, and where it comes from. Uh, First, why we need wisdom. In that quote on the front of your bulletin, a guy named Alec Moutier writes, he writes that wisdom is the ability to see things the way they really are. Um, Another guy, a philosopher named Cornelius Plantiga writes that wisdom is a knowledge of God's world and a knack of fitting oneself into it. So listen, here's my definition, working definition for wisdom this morning. Wisdom is understanding reality, seeing things the way they really are, and conforming yourself to fit that reality. And that sounds heady, um, but it's really very simple because Every time a parent tells their young child, don't touch the stove that's hot, right? Um, Don't stick things in electrical outlets. Uh, Don't run with scissors, things we've told every one of our children growing up, all right? Um, That when parents do that, they're teaching their children wisdom (laughs) because they're saying there's this physical reality, right, uh, that goes to make up the world, how heat and electricity and sharp objects can really hurt you. And you are only safe in life when you conform your life to fit that reality. If you are blind to that reality, or if you decide to ignore that reality, or if you go against that reality, you're going to get electrocuted or or burned or cut. And the older our kids get, we tell them, you know, you need to practice your piano, you need to study, don't text and drive, things like that. Um, Those aren't arbitrary rules, right? Those are lessons in wisdom. This is the way things really are, to do well in the recital, to survive Memphis traffic, um, to uh, pass your algebra test. There's a way the world works. You have to understand that reality and conform yourself to it. So practice the piano, study, and all that other stuff. Um, you know, wisdom is seeing the way things really are and conform. It's getting in line with that reality, right? It's getting in sync with that reality. But here's the deal in your life and mine. When the hardness of life does come, and it plows itself into the middle of our lives. We aren't spending our energy 
and our time and our resources to get wisdom. What we're doing is we're spending all of that trying to get reality, trying to conform and subdue reality to fit our desires. Right? I promise this is not C.S. Lewis Sunday, so this is the last reference. Um, But he wrote another book, yet another book. He wrote a lot of books. Uh, This one, The Abolition of Man. And in it, he wrote about our modern aversion to wisdom. And this is what he wrote. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. The problem facing us today is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men, and the solution is a technique. What does he mean by that? I'm going to use my life as an example, because I have sat in a counselor's office when the hardness of life was just beating the mess out of me, right? And I begged my counselor to give me a how-to book, right, to give me a program or give me some exercises or even give me a pill that will make all of this go away, right? I really wanted that pill. Um, but, um, but listen, here's what I, I wanted, that to change the situation, right? I was looking for a technique, a way out of the hardness, a way to change reality to fit my desires, to change reality to what I think reality should be, uh, and not to change my heart to fit God's reality, because I knew and you know, too, that that would involve a lot of pain. Um, and James is saying to grow in maturity and to become the complete whole person God intends you to be, you need wisdom. You don't need techniques, right? Listen, when you're dealing with financial struggles or you're dealing with relational trials or an unfaithful spouse, or a child caught in addiction, or you're dealing with loss and grief and death, or chronic pain, or a terrible medical diagnosis, or soul-shaking disappointment in your vocation, or if you're dealing with abuse and terrible baggage from your past, James says what you need in the midst of the hardness of life is you need wisdom. Because listen, when the hardness of life hits you full on, it is going to challenge your assumptions. It is going to challenge your beliefs. It's going to challenge your understanding of reality itself. Your beliefs about how a loving God could possibly allow you or others you love to face such terrible pain and heartache. It's going to challenge your assumptions in your life about who's really in control, no matter what you say, but what you really believe. Your understanding of yourself, both the depths of your depravity and your incredible value. Your understanding of others and what God is like and how His world works and what it means to follow Him in His kingdom. All of those things are getting challenged when the hardness of life crashes into us. And you need wisdom to see things the way they really are, James says. You need wisdom to conform your life to fit reality, even when your life feels like it's being torn apart. You need wisdom because the hardness of life… I need you to listen to me clearly here. You need wisdom because the hardness of life and trials, they don't automatically cause you to grow. 
and become mature and whole and complete. Because for many of us, the hardness of life has come in, and it has turned us cold and hard and bitter and anxious and angry and self-absorbed and fearful and full of self-pity. But James is saying, if you get wisdom, if you can form your life to get in sync with God's reality, those same inevitable trials that will come into all of our lives, he's saying, they can make you softer and kinder and freer and stronger and more humble and more compassionate and more gracious and more loving and more joyful. And no technique, no how-to book, no program can ever change you like that. Only the hard process of conforming your heart to fit God's reality. We need wisdom. So, so second, let's talk about how we get it, how, how we can get wisdom. And listen, the answer seems, it seems very easy here in this passage uh, because you get to verse 6 and you just say, well, ask in faith. That's that's simple. That's how you get wisdom. Um, and then James, he used this imagery, uh, right, of someone who asks with doubts, being like a wave of the sea, tossed and driven by the wind. And when we read that, we're left thinking, this means I've got to ratchet up the sincerity. I've got to be super sincere. I can't have any questions. I can't have any doubts. I can't have any fear. And if I have any of that, I might as well not ask. And that view of these verses, it's really attractive to people like me. Um, And the reason is, is because that's a technique. If I can just work myself into the right emotional or psychological or spiritual state, then voila, wisdom, and it's over, right? But listen, James, what you need to understand about this passage… There's a lot of teaching this morning. It seems like more teaching than preaching. But listen, James, he wasn't writing about faith in general or doubt in general or questioning in general. He was talking in a very specific sense. And the key to understanding what James meant comes in verse 8, where James wrote, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Literally, that could be translated, he is a two-souled man. As one author puts it, James wasn't writing about intellectual doubt or questions, but moral and spiritual commitment. Okay, but what in the world does that mean, right? I I think it might help by thinking about something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. He was talking about religious people, people who said they loved God and were following God but they were spending all their energy, and they were struggling, and they were toiling to lay up for themselves treasures on earth. And Jesus said plainly, no one can serve two masters, right? Ultimately, Jesus is saying, you can't serve two masters. You can't. But that hasn't stopped us from trying. It really hasn't. I mean, it's kind of like we listen to the Bible where it says things about our wealth, and it talks about the dangers of holding on to our wealth and not giving it away generously, and we understand all the money in the world cannot satisfy us, it cannot keep us safe, it cannot make us happy. And we think, amen to that, preacher, right? But I think I'll still give it a shot, Um, see if it can make me happy and safe. 
Jesus says, ultimately, no one can serve two masters. And James says, this is what it looks like when you're trying to serve two masters in your life. You're like a wave of the sea, tossed and driven by the wind. You know, Fifteen years ago, I went with some friends down to the British Virgin Islands to do uh, some sailing for a week. And I know nothing about sailboats. I didn't learn anything while I was there or anything. I don't really understand why you would even want to sail, um, especially since they make boats with motors now. But I was along really for the ride, right? I know it's romantic and all that kind of stuff. I just don't get into that. But listen, the islands that make up the British Virgin Islands, they're two chains of islands. And, um, and so in between those islands is what, what is called the Sir Francis Drake Channel, and, which is great because it funnels the wind down that channel and it makes for really great sailing and you can tick and tack and whatever you do in boats, right, in sailboats, all the way through that chain of islands. But the other thing that the islands do is they block the big swells of the ocean, right? So it's, it, there are waves, but they're relatively calm inside. And so, you know, being a newbie and all that stuff out in the British Virgin Islands, I was begging my friends, Let, let's take the boat outside the chain, see what it's like out there. And uh, finally they gave in and we did. And five minutes in, I was somewhere between like crying and throwing up, which was a really like weird emotional and physical kind of thing there because these swells were just huge, right? They were like one moment I'm looking down 10 feet, and then the next moment I'm looking up 10 feet at the next wave that feels like it's going to crush us. And, um, and I, was getting, I was getting very, very nauseous, and I was very uncomfortable and wanted to get back inside the channel very quickly. Um, and my friend, who was an experienced sailor, he could see what was happening um, by just looking at me, right? And he said, he said, look back at the islands. He says, you got to look at that island and don't stop looking at that island. And so I did it. And you know what? It worked. It got rid of my seasickness. Um, I, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it after that, but, <laughs> but, it was, but I survived it. Um, and, uh, and look, listen, I still remember that day. It was like, 90 degrees out, and it was gorgeous and beautiful. I mean, that wasn't even a storm. That was just like normal ocean stuff that I couldn't handle. And listen, sometimes life hits us full blast with its hardness and takes us into storms and the lightning crashes and the thunder rolls, which I think is something Garth Brooks sang about. And at other times, at other times, it's just kind of the white noise of the brokenness of our world that is around us and with us and in us all the time, just playing havoc with us physically and spiritually and emotionally and socially and psychologically. And listen, what we need is a still point in the ups and downs and the tossing and turning. I mean, that's what my friend was saying to me on the boat, right? He was saying, look back at the land as a point of reference. Because even though you're tossing and turning right now, it's unshakable, and it's unmovable, right? And it's unsinkable, right? You need that kind of point of reference if you're going to deal with the ups and downs of life and the inevitable trials that come into all of our lives. Um, Listen, if you're going to be wise, James is saying, you can't be too sold. You've got to take your hands off of your life, he is saying. 
Stop trying to control life. And look at Jesus who is unsinkable and unmovable and unshakable. But here's how you know whether or not you're too sold. You feel fine when the sun is shining and the water is calm in life, right? And when life is good, you say things like, Jesus is my friend and His love is all I need. It's enough for me. But then your friends reject you and your friends abandon you and it sends you into a downward spiral of depression in your life, tossing and turning. What does that mean when that crushes you? Not just to be sad, but to be crushed by it. It means that you are too sold. I mean, you, you were really living not for Jesus' approval, but for the approval of your friends. Or you say, Jesus is my rock, He's my fortress, He's my security, He is my hope. But then the economy goes into a recession, and your retirement account gets wiped out, and it sends you into a desperate panic. You were too sold. Your real security was in your wealth. Or you say, Jesus gives me my identity, but then your child is arrested for driving under the influence, and you're mortified, and you're ashamed, and you are so terrified that your friends will find out. Or you receive some kind of criticism, and it doesn't cause you to reflect on your life, but it makes you angry and furious and defensive. You were too sold. You said your identity was in Jesus, but you were looking to your parenting or your performance or your, your need to be right about everything to be your identity. And listen, we're all doing some of this. And we all have to look back to see Jesus, right? I mean, we could go on and on. If you're looking to your health, your paycheck, your rightness, your parenting, your bank account, your social status, your marriage, your career, it's all far too fragile. It's all far too fragile, and it's shakable, and it's movable, and it's all sinkable in your life. To become wise, you have to fix your eyes on what is unshakable and unmovable and unsinkable, even in the hardness of life. You need to fix your eyes on Jesus. And if and when you do, James is saying, and the Bible is saying, you will begin to grow in wisdom. James is saying, it's only when you take your hands off of your life only when you're willing to lose control of your life and submit to Jesus that life's hardness will begin to transform you. It's the great paradox of God's wisdom that only when you take your hands off of your life and look at Jesus, which sounds so, so very terrifying, I know, but only when you do that and look to Him will you become unsinkable and unshakable and unmovable. You get wisdom by putting your whole life into Jesus' hands. Okay, finally, where this wisdom comes from. This is what James wrote right from the start in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Literally, James wrote, let him ask from the giving God. Because he's telling us about God's nature, that God's nature is to give and to give abundantly. You know, one author I read created this great mental picture. I thought of what James was saying. He wrote that God is like a pitcher, like a pitcher of water, right? A pitcher tilted towards His children, just waiting to pour wisdom over the trial. So let's start here. <laughs> Do you see that reality? Because I think a lot of us think about God like He's 
he's up in heaven, he's got his arms crossed, and he's kind of tapping his foot. He's very disappointed, he's very reserved, and sometimes he'll take his glasses and he'll move them down to the tip of his nose and kind of shake his head at us. A lot of us live with that kind of view of God, that he's like, he's disappointed in us, he's holding back from us. James is saying that's not his nature at all. He's tilted towards his children. He's just waiting to pour out his gifts of wisdom. He's eager. He's excited. He's longing to give good gifts to his children. He wants you to grow in wisdom, to see things the way they really are. You know, you and I, we live in a world that where the dominant view is that this life is all there is. YOLO, right? <laughs> I'm trying to be hip. That's like five years ago. Um, you know, <clears throat> you only live once kind of deal, right? Um, and if you, what that means is that if you miss out, your life is going to be full of regrets, right? If you miss out and God longs to give you wisdom to in the midst of experiencing life's brokenness, to know that you weren't meant for a life like this, right? It, if that's the way, you are meant for another world. You are meant for a world where one day, someday, God Himself comes back, and He makes everything wrong and everything broken, right and whole again. You know, if that's the way things really are, then you can't really miss out on things in this life. Because this isn't the only life. We live in a world where the dominant view is that death is the final word. Whether it's physical death or the death of dying to yourself or some, from someone else or dying to your own reputation or whatever it is, and God longs to pour out wisdom. He is a God who brings life out of death. He brings redemption through death. And He will do that in your friendships, in your family, through your career, with the way you use your gifts and the way you use your wealth. He does it all the time. He brings life through death. We live in a world where the dominant view is that time is always running out on us. And in that world, we are impatient, and we are angry, and we are frustrated. But God longs to pour out wisdom on His children, that His timing for both the brokenness and the redemption in your life, it is always perfect. It is always on time. We live in a world where the dominant view is that the experience of the hardness of life and God's love for us, they cannot be compatible so that we become insecure and we feel forgotten and we feel abandoned in the emphatic silence of our suffering. And God wants to shower you with wisdom to realize that the hardness of life, in the hardness of life, His love fits very well in your life. Those two things are compatible, and He's longing to make you whole and complete and mature through the hardness of life because He loves you. Listen, we are so very often bitter and anxious and fearful and full of self-pity in our trials because we think we know how life should go if we were the ones in charge. And God longs to pour out His wisdom upon us, wisdom for you to see that He is on His throne right now ruling and reigning over all things, that He longs for you to find rest even in the hardness of life and when you don't understand what's happening and at times when you don't understand the things He commands you to do in His Word. Because He is using all of that to remake you and His world for the glory of His Son and for your good. 
So, so how are we to start seeing things the way they really are and to align ourselves and conform our lives to reality? We are to turn ourselves to the source of all wisdom, James says, to God Himself. You should ask Him. You should ask Him in the midst of your trials for wisdom because He is like a pitcher tilted towards you, longing to pour out His wisdom. And what should give you confidence? Because it does take a measure of confidence to ask Him that, right? Where do you get the confidence to trust that He will, in fact, pour out His wisdom generously? Do you need to look any further than the life, the death, and the resurrection of His own Son? Because when the fullness of time came, Paul wrote, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. He has always been like a pitcher tilted towards His children. His timing in history and in your life has and always will be perfect no matter what it looks like to you. And through His Son's death on the cross, He has proved to us that death never has the final word in His kingdom. He proved in His own Son's life that the hardness of life and His love are very compatible. He proved in His own Son's life, death, and resurrection that He is always on His throne, ruling and reigning, even when things seem to be falling apart, even when His Son seems to be being torn apart. Listen, I feel like I'm cutting things a little bit short, but I've, I've already gone a pretty good while this morning. So, um, James, he continues this uh, throughout several more verses in chapter 1, so we'll be able to talk more about trials next week. But let me end like this. You know, little kids, they have a knack for saying, you know, such cute little things, right? And every once in a while, my own children have said very, very cute things at one time, and at the same time, I think they also have, well, they, they can also say some not-so-cute things, but, but that's not really the point. Um, sometimes they'll say things that are cute in the moment, and then I kind of ponder them <laughs> for a while afterwards. And years ago when we were in Starkville, Mississippi, um, I remember… Uh, holding Kennedy, she was just a little toddler at the time, like three years old, uh, in my arms. And I walked with her out into the backyard, right? Um, and we walked out in the backyard, and it was this really, really clear night. And so we were looking up, and we saw the moon, and it was one of those nights. I don't really understand why it looks bigger sometimes than it, you know, others, but it was huge, right? And it was out there, and we were looking at the moon. And I was showing it to her, I was pointing it out to her, and all of a sudden, as she sees it, I feel her kind of lunge out of my arms, and I like hold on to her tightly, and then she just she starts kind of crying and whining. Um, she's a toddler after all, right? And she keeps saying that she, you know, she wants to touch it, right? And and so listen, when that happened, I didn't immediately like run inside and tell Jennifer we've got to call the optometrist. Something's you know, gone terribly wrong here. Um, you know, I just it, it was the perspective of a little three-year-old, right? The limited perspective of a little three-year-old. And, you know, when we go through the hardness of life without wisdom, and we find ourselves growing hard, cold, and anxious, and bitter, and, and all of those things, trying with all of our effort to subdue and conform reality to fit our desires, I want you to imagine that from heaven's perspective, you look like a little toddler trying to touch the moon, 
you are so limited. We are all so limited in our perspective. Life is filled with hardness and trial that will inevitably come to all of our lives. And James is saying, if you're going to see yourself transformed by it and see Jesus make you softer and kinder and stronger and more humble through it all, you need wisdom. You need to be able to begin seeing your life from the perspective of heaven. You need to grow up a little bit. You need to grow up into Jesus so that you can become wise in all of life's trials. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You. Um, We thank You that we have had time this morning to sing Your praises, to confess our sin, to hear that wonderful good news of the assurance of our pardon, to hear stories of Your work. We thank You that we have had opportunity to be underneath Your Word, and we've covered an awful lot this morning. And I I feel a little bit embarrassed because it's something that I feel like I know very little of, um, and that is wisdom. Um, And we all together need to learn how to look at Jesus, to fix our eyes upon Him. We need You in the midst of life's hardness, to pour out graciously wisdom that we don't have. We need to see Jesus, Father. We need to understand life from Your perspective. Father, we need You to take the hardness of our lives and not make us harder, but make us softer. To not make us more fearful, but more confident. To not make us more proud, but more humble. Father, we need you to do this work in us by your Spirit, and we pray that you would, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.